Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True Crime Uncensored, I am the, let me look, legendary Burl Bear. The man in Howard Lapidus' chair is in Howard Lapidus because he can't sit down. He had a little surgery on his tuchus, but he'll be all right. Frank C. Gerardo Jr., brilliant journalist and uh, co-author with Kenji Rellin, some other guy, of Betrayal in Blue, the shocking memoir of the scandal that rocked the NYPD. Some other guy would be Burl Bear. That's me, yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> the legendary, the one and only true crime Edgar Award winning author. Yeah, I love it when you talk like that. <laughs> Ken Durell is with us, too, on the phone. Hey, Ken, nice to have you. Hey, Hey, Ken. We had fun the other night. We were on Dan Zapansky's show. uh, Trainer. (laughs) Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here, so if we say anything wrong, he'll correct us. And uh, as as good as we were on Dan Zapansky's show, we'll be better on mine. (laughs) And do you know why that is, Burl? Because it's a shorter show and we talk faster. No, because we're going to be discussing your favorite all-time subject. Myself. Correct. And Ken (laughs) Jarrell. It's really Ken's story. It's just that uh, Frank and I helped him uh, tell his story. It's a hell of a story. i got to ask Ken... The question, which is part of the reason we do the show. Do you ever look back on your life and go, God, did I screw it up? <laughs> yeah, every day since this all started up all over again. <laughs> yeah, you had a, a couple of years or a few decades of respite from feelings of overwhelming guilt and shame. <laughs> then it all yeah, came back. I was able to move on there for a little while, and then it all got brought up again with the documentary, and, and that brought the book back to the forefront for me, and the... Uh, here we are again. Yeah, it just keeps going around in a circle. Uh, it's harder on my wife. She's, I she bet it is. All the time. Uh, you know, I, I worry about you because I figure one of these days she's just going to pop and slug you. Or maybe she already has. <laughs> I, I got to sleep in a separate room and lock the door. <laughs> Still got a Rottweiler? Big Mastiffs now. Oh, God, those are great. My daughter had three of them. Uh, at the beginning of the book, or actually on the cover of the book, this is the first time I've actually seen the book. Because Frank brought me a copy. It says, The shocking memoir of the scandal that rocked the NYPD. It's not the only scandal that's rocked the NYPD. I mean, even when, when uh, Ken, you know, Ken was a, a cop in New York. It's the only memoir, though. Yes, it is the only memoir. Ken was a nice kid, a nice Catholic boy, married to a nice Jewish girl, you know, living... Uh... My sympathies. <laughs> You know why Jewish men die before their wives, don't you? Because they want to. Damn right. (laughs) Where were we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ken's story. (laughs) Ken marries this uh, lovely, very good-looking woman. She still is, too, boy. Uh, And and he's got a couple great kids and a mastiff. What, What more could a man want? And when he was a young guy, he becomes a cop. Little did he know he'd also become a criminal. How long did it take, Ken? Depends on the degree of the crime. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go from petty to, uh, I mean, like the first time, well, it didn't seem like much. But the, it, the first time I took money, I was, I was in for seven years. I was all, stuck 
practically stuck right into my hand. So you're sitting in a squad car, and your partner turns to you and hands you a hundred bucks. Yep. Just pulls it out of his pocket. Goes here. This is for you. And you go. Why me? Was it why my lucky day? <laughs> I, I was. I was like, what is this for? Where is that from? I had no idea. It was. It came out of the blue to me. And uh, if I had any brains at the time, I would have uh, said no and went in, uh, went in another direction. But unfortunately, I, I did not see, uh, see all, well, if 100, all, the, all the bad roads down, down, down in the future. I mean, if 100 bucks is good, Ken, isn't 200 better? <laughs> it, it, that's all. He took 800 and only gave me 100. I found out. <laughs> Go beat the crap out of him. Seven years later, when he testified at the Marlin Commission, he testified to taking $800 from that scene. And he gave you a hundred. Some partner that yeah. is. Hell, exactly. so, so much for a piece of rice for all. <laughs> yeah, twelve yeah. percent. Uh, yeah. Well, that's he was just the getaway driver. <laughs> or was he driving? He he was he was driving. So, uh, from having read this brilliant book, <laughs> uh, that's a subjective uh, opinion. Okay. Uh, Which part, having read it, or the fact that it's brilliant? Uh, uh, yes. Well, the fact that he can read is mind <laughs> mind-numbingly incredible. Actually, for, for people who are unaware of what's going on here, uh, Frank, why don't you give him the background so I don't have to talk too much. Okay. All right. Yeah. So um, this is so Ken Ken Urell was a New York Police Department uh, officer. Uh, he uh, joined in the 70s and um, was stationed in Brooklyn in the uh, 7-5, which was a notoriously rough district with a lot of crime, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and this... His being there coincided with the rise of cocaine and um, also the rise of crack cocaine. Um, Ken got involved with some nefarious characters, ended up leaving the police department, and after he left, he was arrested and involved in a pretty large cocaine distribution ring, uh, turned into a federal case. All the while, he was keeping notes like a diary, and um, it's a pretty cool thing. He kind of put it away. He's lucky they didn't find it when they raided his house. Yeah. Well, they, they found it. <laughs> they threw it up in the air, not realizing what they found. <laughs> yeah, but, but they got all excited. They got excited. They got excited over the codes to a video game. They thought it was a secret code to his criminal empire. <laughs> the, the, that, would, that would open the books. Yeah. But instead, they tossed the books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's funny. It, um... So, so anyway, so they did. So the, there's this great documentary um, on that era, um, and on Ken and uh, his partner Mike Dowd, and some of the other uh, players that were involved: Baron Perez, Adam Diaz, Chicky, Chicky, that'd be Henry uh, Guevara, and um, and you know, these guys are characters. They're just these. You watch this documentary, and it, it, you feel like you're watching a combination of. Uh, you know, Goodfellas and and maybe I don't know Barney Miller. Barney Miller, Goodfellas and Barney. I like that combination. Let's go with the Shield. The All Shield. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. So it's that sort of it's that sort of a thing when you watch this documentary. And so now you know Ken's got this memoir, a contemporary memoir of that era. Um, he we got you know he got to Burl and Burl came to me, and uh, we we kind of put it all together. Um, we added some history of the New York Police Department and the various scandals that have happened there. We, um, you know, we talked again to some of the players, including Baron Perez and Chicky Guevara and Adam Diaz. Adam Diaz is this. I'd love to do Adam Diaz's book. <laughs> well, I mean, that guy's got to have a great book in him. 
Uh, they call he, him Blondie. He, he is interesting. <laughs> they call him Blondie, and uh, he's you know tiny little guy who is a Dominican Coke dealer, and you know the really kind of the Tony Montana of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the Bronx for at least a few years. Uh, it's quite a story, and uh, you know Ken's Ken's narrative ties this whole thing together just so beautifully, and then you know the fact that. These guys were, not, you know, wanted to talk about that era too, just help the book, and it's such a great companion to the documentary because, you see, Ken's memoir really takes you behind the scenes. It 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 talks to stuff that you you know you have these questions when you watch the documentary. But the documentary is called The Seven Five. They've been showing it a lot on Showtime and it's originally on uh, Sundance Channel. Yes, that is the documentary, and, and you know I urge you to watch it, and I urge you to you know if you're listening to buy our book. It's called Betrayal in Blue. Yes, I think that's a wonderful idea. In <laughs> fact, I would suggest with the holidays coming up, what could be more in the Christmas spirit I'll than have a, a stocking stuffer about cops selling coke? I'll have <laughs> Elvis. I'll I love have a it. Blue Christmas. Yeah. We'd uh, probably be able to sell a book better if we gave away a gram of coke with it. I, I think that's a wonderful idea. And I think I'll order, uh, oh, about 24 uh, copies of the book right now. I think it'll do better if, mar if you put marijuana in Oh, well, that's already legal. Yeah, but you'll do better. <laughs> More, You have a larger audience. Larger audience. Well, but, could but, be, but, but they might fall asleep before they get Before they read it, yeah. What do you care? As long yeah. as they pay. They'll eat the pages. <laughs> as long as they pay, why would you care? It's the first time I've actually seen the book, uh, which is a nice, feels like a good book. <laughs> hey, I didn't know that the texture of the paper made a difference, but it I, does. you say so. Yeah. So, so i, I got to ask Ken. So, um... So, so Ken, you know, we, we, you know, in the book, we we talk to your friends and and coworkers and stuff like that. Have you heard back from any of them since we published it? I've recently spoken uh, probably three times already with Chicky, and actually, Baron texted me a couple of times today. We texted back and forth. So, what's their opinion? Chicky hasn't get, gotten the book yet. He's waiting for it either to be downloaded for free on the internet on some torrent site and <laughs> money, or uh, he's waiting for an autographed copy from us. Oh, well, that, that so we can do. Not read it yet, but I have, to, I have sent him a picture of, I think it was chapter 11, that was entitled Chicky. Chicky. Yep, Chicky gets his own chapter. Have you spoken to Michael? No, I have not spoken to Michael uh, since our last event together, which was probably over a year ago. So he doesn't drop by unannounced. <laughs> no, he does not. Yeah. Probably just as well. What, what's uh, what, what's he up to these days? Uh, honestly, I don't know. He's uh, jet setting all over the place. Every every time uh, someone on Twitter writes me, they're telling him Mike's over here, Mike's over there. You know, like, well, he's, you know, he's an exploiter. So, so yeah. one of the other great things that we were able to do with this book is um, Dory, Ken's wife. Talked, you know, talked a lot and talked, you know, extensively about this period of her life from, you know, marrying Ken, living through all of this, going through the arrest. And it really, I think, brings the story together from a woman's perspective that you might not get with a bunch of cops in the squad car. Um, yeah. And, and Dory is great. You know, um, she's, she really, uh, I think, keeps Ken grounded and keeps our story moving along. And uh, I, sh I sure was happy to, you know, to be able to talk to her and get her involved. 
I'm wondering, Ken, what was Dory's reaction to the book now that it's out? Uh, she's sort of happy for me because she knows I, I wanted to, you know, do this for a very long time. Uh, it's hard for her to digest it all because there's a lot of things that she has not known about. I kept her in the dark all these years, and when the documentary came out, I had to tell her about things <clears throat> that I didn't want to tell her about. And, uh, you know, there's, there's parts in there that she just doesn't want to relive, even though, you know, she's, she's glad I, it's finally uh, a project that I've completed, you know, that's been on the back burner for 20-something years. Well, what's in your favor, Ken, is the fact that some of the stuff that she might really be pissed off about was like over 20-some years ago. And that's like... Try explaining that to an emotional <laughs> You go, honey, it's been two decades since then. <laughs> <laughs> Those people are either dead or grandmothers. <laughs> for, for her to find out about these things now, it means it's happening to her now. Oh, God. Even though it was, you know... Why can't a woman be more that? like a man? Um, <laughs> no. No. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, well, you're blessed that she's stuck with you as long as she has. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a lucky man. And, and 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 the book really benefits from you know a lot of Dory's insight and uh, experience, and uh, we we were blessed to, that she participated with us. So yeah, she could have told us all to go to hell. Yeah, she really could have. It, you know, um, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been the book that it is. Um, and I think that you know the memoir, and so Ken's memoir, you know, takes you through uh, his his youth in Queens. Uh, his joining the NYPD, his getting into um, you know a, the rookie assignment in a in a Brooklyn district, and then ending up in the seven five precinct, and um, you know we and Ken you know tells his story for, through his eyes, but the fact that we were able to you know talk to these other people um, was great, uh, and, and and the era was so fascinating, wasn't it, Burl? I live, I, I think I remember it. I spent most of it looking into a mirror, above the mirror, actually. <laughs> looking down. Look it down at the mirror. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I had a wonderful time, actually. Well, that explains a lot, though, bro. <laughs> now, people tend to look back at my 60s, which I term the era of my Paisley vacation. <laughs> As they say, if you think you remember it, you weren't there. Well, it's fascinating it is on how two people write a book with, some, uh, with somebody else telling them a story. Why don't we hear some of the story? All right. Well, well why, don't, why doesn't... I'd, like to, I'd actually like Ken to talk about, you know, he, partnering with Dowd being out on the street and uh, you know the days after that hundred dollars exchanged hands in the squad car uh, when I first hooked up with Mike I actually uh, we were both without partners and we kept getting thrown in the car together and Mike had a reputation that uh, was not the uh, stellar cop reputation and I actually didn't want to be with him there was a uh, no objecting to it. No matter what I said, they kept sticking us in a car together, and eventually we decided to uh, make it a, a legit thing and become steady partners. And uh, we hooked up, uh, had an emotional connection between uh, being married at the same time and having children at the same time. So uh, became buddies. Yeah, exactly. We became we became really buddies before we became partners, just by uh, talking and. Uh, as soon as we became steady partners, 
he started talking about money in the precinct and his past uh, episodes where he crossed the blue line from cop to criminal. He wanted to see my reaction to it. And in that time in the police department, you don't go running off to internal affairs and say, so-and-so is uh, doing criminal acts and doing things out of policy favor because uh, mm-hmm. you want those guys to be there for you when uh, you're in trouble, which is all the time, in that pre- especially in that precinct. Reminds me of Serpico. Exactly. You know, at that time, this is 1987 when this is happening with Dowd, and Serpico, I must have seen it 50 times, so that's playing in your head. If I go tell on these guys, or Mike in particular, and the partners he was talking about. I said you have to get shot. Forbid, if I'm in some situation where I need them, I'm getting shot in the face like Serpico did. So, of course no one's going to say anything. And then little by little, uh, it becomes ingrained in you, and then he throws you that money, and it's that easy, and then the next time's easier and easier and easier, and the crimes go from, you know, a little burglary scene where I get a hundred bucks to eventually we're uh, working for a major drug organization. That's a good gig. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, it, if it weren't for the fact that that was illegal, that was a great gig. It was, the cocaine business is an excellent business. Unfortunately, it's a it's a criminal business. Well, that's that's because there's so much money in it. You can't have you can't have all that wonderful corruption if it's legal. So at the height, you know, at the height of you got uh, at the height of you guys working for this, you know, cartel or this distribution ring. How much were you making? We were making eight thousand dollars a week every week in cash given to us in a brown paper bag. And uh, is that each? It, it was easy. Eight thousand dollars, and we split it. So ah. we. <laughs> After now, 20 years later, finding out how uh, how powerful the organization was, <laughs> the Diaz organization, we undersold ourselves. <laughs> we should have been making a lot more money. But still, would you figure out what the dollar was worth then? That was a hell of a lot of money. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. It would be a hell of a lot of money now to make 8000 a week. Or 16000 a month a person. <laughs> That's a good deal. I'll take that job. Yeah. It's a little high risk. No, but, I if I, but I got kind of diplomatic immunity if I'm a cop. It was a little bump in pay over, over the regular police a, a little bump. Yeah. How much was the regular pay for a cop in New York at that time? We were probably making without overtime, which was uh, maybe 700 a week, 750 a week. Uh, no, and that's biweekly. We've got a biweekly check, so. So the uh, but that that wasn't the only way you guys were scoring, right? I mean, there was there were other opportunities to make money above and beyond that eight grand. Oh yeah, I mean, you you walk in on and any, any crime scene you walk in on that is uh, where there's uh, money or dope. Money, yeah, money or dope. The money or dope just disappears, you know. And you got a, either the person who was there at the scene is already dead when you get there, so they're not complaining when you end up taking it. Or you catch them in in the criminal act, and you don't arrest them, so they're just oh thank you know thank goodness I'm not arrested because if they get arrested they're losing their money in dope anyway. So and we, and time. Open and we go on our way, and, no, and they don't say nothing. They're just happy not to be arrested. And plus, you know, you can go back and do them again. <laughs> you write down that name and address on the back page of a memo book. Uh huh. Hey, it's been six weeks. Let's go get them again. Confiscates for me and never notices. <laughs> Yeah, we, we had a cop like that in Seattle. We used to see he'd, he'd come down uh, he'd come down the street, I think it was Brooklyn Avenue and University Way, and that's where the, the drug dealers used to lean against the wall there by the university selling pot and speed and acid. He'd shake down all the speed dealers with his speed. 
didn't arrest him, just shake him down. <laughs> they knew, here he comes. <laughs> so they'd make sure they have plenty for him. Better have a little bit extra there. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a great scene in the book where you guys uh, go out to a, a call of a dead body. And you're uh, you're up you're you're up in the uh, an apartment uh, or a, a room of a condo, and there's money there. And Mike's got to get it out, and he's got to get it out in a way that nobody sees it. And how does he do that? Yeah, well, th this was a call of uh, came over shots fired. So uh, where it comes over is not normally a repetitive call where there's drugs and money and uh, and shooting so we it's in a residential area so we know it's out of the ordinary and most likely it was a stash house for for drugs and or money so we go racing over there before the unit that was assigned the job gets there first one's there and as soon as we get up to the front door the door's partially open with a dead body blocking the doorway the guy's shot in the head and you hear people yelling from upstairs we jump over the body we clear the ground floor we run upstairs and while I'm checking on the people up there Mike uh, runs into a front bedroom where there's a safe and there's some heroin in the drawer. And uh, as other cops are showing up on the scene, I go into the room with Dowd, and uh, they start trying to take over the scene, and I close the door on one of these detectives who uh, retired recently, within the last year, as a hero detective. There was a big write-up on him and a paper about him. And uh, I told him, we, we got this room, don't worry about it, and he, he backed out, and then... Dowd grabs a couple of ounces of heroin, throws it in a paper bag, and normally he throws things down his pants because no one's going to check down his pants. And uh, there were too many cops at the time, so when we were walking out of the room, he had it in a little brown lunch bag, and a boss is coming up the stairs, and there was a bunch of guns in the room, so we left the guns for this hero detective. And uh, as we're exploring yeah. this banister, <laughs> the, top, the top of the stairway, there's a garbage pail, like an outdoor garbage pail but it's in the house so he takes the heroin puts it down on top of the garbage pail and we're going down the stairs as the boss is coming up and as Dowd is passing the boss he reaches back over the banister grabs the heroin and we go out the front door now yeah you guys were moving coke and heroin wasn't like one of the things that you were typically selling so was it easy what I mean how'd you get rid it of it it was easy to get rid of it but we did not know enough about the heroin tr trade where it came back in drips and drabs and we were most likely ripped off. Yeah, figures. So you, you there's a, there's this great scene where, you know, it's your first day in the 7-5 and, you know, there's this crusty old cop there <laughs> and, uh, and he wants to, you know, extend the warmest greeting possible to you and your friend Frank Essig. So what does he say? We, this, this, this is pretty funny because it's, uh, it's like the hit line in the documentary. Uh, we had just finished our probationary period. We were working in the 7-7 precinct and on the way home we were assigned to the 7-5 precinct to start there the next day. So a day early we're in civilian clothes, my buddy and I, and we walk in the front, front door of the 7-5 precinct and we flash our tens. That's what our badge is. We call call them tens. And uh, we tell tell the guy he's probably in his mid thirties, early to early forties, and he's sitting there on at the front desk. And we go, we're assigned to start here tomorrow. Uh, we just like to go find a locker. And the first words out of any cop's mouth from the seven five, I hear, "Welcome to the land of fuck." <laughs> 
<laughs> right away, that, you knew you were in for that's something. something. That sticks with you, know, you for for the rest of your life. Here's <laughs> this old time cop, and we're two young twenty year old kids walking in the front door of this uh, badass precinct station house, and this guy's telling us, "Welcome to the land of fuck." And, and my buddy and I just looked at each other. <laughs> we're like, Jesus, is he trying to tell us something? Because we have experienced cops that were burnt out already in our probationary period in the 7-7 and it, it, we almost like just us you know just shake it off it's just another burnt out cop no big deal welcome to the land of fuck okay here we go land oh, of fuck. wasn't the uh wasn't that particular precinct at that time one of the murder capitals of the world the 7-5 in the mid 80s was like uh 85 86 87 had the highest number of murders in the country for like Three years running. Yeah, yeah the next year it only got the bronze. It kind of went yeah, down. Exactly. Hey, I got a question. I woke up this morning with bullfrogs on my mind, and then I thought to myself... Did uh, Jeremiah <laughs> come yeah. see you? Yeah, he did. Uh, if the ghetto is so poor, how are they making all this money with the drugs? How are they making the money? Because you got people coming from all over the city coming in to buy the drugs from the drug dealers, and then they go back out and distribute it among the five, the five boroughs. Okay, so it's not that the poor people in the ghetto are buying it; it's the people in the suburbs are coming to the ghetto to buy it. Exactly. It's not you know it's not the people really that are living there in the precinct buying the quantity. They're, they're buying small small amounts, but the big dealers are coming in to make the purchases and then removing it out of the county. Yeah, it, uh, I uh, bumped into a former drug dealer from uh, Boston said the same thing. Uh, he and his dad had a coke operation, and uh, he said, then some white guy came and set me up in a safe house in the suburbs, then I really made money. <laughs> so then he retired. It's nice work if you can retire. Yeah, if you can get away with it and have no repercussions, it's great. Hey, do you have any idea how much time uh, uh, Adam Diaz did in the Slammer? Diaz did, from what I've been told and from speaking to him, he did about eight years, and then he got deported to DR. But but his now his time and his case is totally separate from yours, right? Yeah, I was I was prior to our, he he got arrested in like eighty nineteen eighty eight. We didn't get arrested until nineteen ninety two. So, so he it, was in for like four years by the time we got arrested. So now you left the police department in eighty eight, right? Eighty nine. In eighty nine, and so you have this whole period of time between eighty nine and ninety two, and you're still working with Mike, right? I, when I first retired, there was like a good six-month, maybe nine-month period. I didn't associate with, with doubt or anybody. I just, just got my life back on track. I, my wife went back to work, and I was sort of doing a Mr. Mom thing. And then uh, I had, Dowd was still doing his thing, doing, you know, uh, selling cocaine. He became a cocaine dealer and still working as a cop and doing whatever he did on the job with different different scams. And I had two other cops that were not involved with us, but I knew who knew what I had done with Dowd in the past that wanted to start selling cocaine out on Long Island. And they came to me to make a connection with Dowd, and uh, that's what I did. And that's how I became a cocaine dealer. And then you and kids, you too, could follow that same path. <laughs> so um, I've, I, this is a, a question I ask for a lot of uh This is Mark guests. Boyer, by the way, our fact checker. Uh, I was wondering, what do you do with the money? Enjoyed it. Leave it at that. 
Well, uh, the the answer I get most often is, is that you can't save it. You got you're almost you're no almost have to spend it. No, it's, it's like you can't go down to the bank and deposit it in the bank. No, absolutely not. Right. I always figured that Adam probably came out all right. We can't figure out how much money that guy must have been making. You know, uh, he was making a lot more than you were. <laughs> yeah, obviously, if he's paying us eight grand a week, yeah, he was doing a little bit better. Than yeah, him. and I'm sure according, that when he, according to the uh, the documentary, he was making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So, so I mean, if he invested it wisely, that <laughs> yeah, guy got himself an annuity. Yeah, sure. I'm sure he's doing fine, selling uh, cigars. <laughs> Whatever the hell he's doing. You, well, that's really what he does. You know, you can. In fact, you can follow Adam uh, on Twitter, or you can follow Ken on Twitter, or, or even Ken's wife Dory, or Burl, or me. Um, but you know, it's it. So Adam, he's keep, keep up with the cast of. Keep up with the yeah. cast of characters. Oh, oh, former cops and drug dealers. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag oh, the 75. Yeah. Isn't that the name of his uh, cigar company? Uh, I believe it is called the 75. Yeah. 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 Cigar but I was gonna. I was. You know. I'm gonna. Yeah. So I, I. You know. Here's the thing about Adam. He's so charming. It it just blows you away. Even more charming than me. Oh, that's <laughs> Earl, you know what? It's a close call between the two of you, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one to Adam. Oh wow, he must really be good. He, he's Adam he's, is a smart, intelligent businessman. Yep. Unfortunately, the business he got involved in was you know drugs and cocaine, but uh, he's a very intelligent person and he, he climbed up the ladder and and ran a multi-million dollar business. And he climbed up the ladder quickly. I mean, you know, as a teenager, yeah, he was kid. doing business with Nicky Barnes, which is, you know, that's not that's small potatoes. Nicky Barnes was Mr. Untouchable, uh, you know, a top heroin dealer in, uh, uh, I guess, what, Washington, uh, Washington Heights, maybe? Washington Heights, yeah, yeah, yeah um, in, the in, the, in the 70s. And, to, you know, to be at that level of, of dealership at that time, you know, uh, Superfly... <laughs> Shaft, <laughs> Mr. Untouchable, Mr. Big, uh, you know that that was that was quite a deal, and Adam, in a, in his own way, was kind of a prince of the city, you know. Um, he King talks, of the New York streets. He, I, I mean, he really was. Now you getting into a, a different corrupt cop story, Prince of the City. <laughs> yeah, I I know, but I said Adam was kind of a prince of the city. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. But, but right, I mean, you know, he had his motorcycle, he had his yeah, cars, he had his women. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's really interesting. And it, it, the other interesting thing, I think, that you, you've, you'll find in this story is is Baron. Now, I know Baron likes to keep low-key, um, but Baron Perez uh, ran an auto body shop uh, with hubcaps. Uh, with, uh, with car stereos. Car stereos, hubcaps. Best car stereos in New York. I'm, I'm mixing up uh, Betrayal in Blue with The Wire. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, th so the... This this guy's auto stereo shop is the top auto stereo shop in New York City, and uh, you know it's a place Adam Adam likes a certain kind of music. He goes and gets his cars done there. And Hello, George in. Michael. Yeah, George. Not, not Adam, that's that's how actually we came involved with everything because uh, Perez is a very diplomatic, again type businessman, and he likes to smooth things out with everybody. And what we recognized was. All the drug dealers were spending cash money at his place, and that's how uh, we hooked up with Perez, who then hooked us up with two different drug organizations, uh, Cello and La Compania, 
and uh, D as in his organization. And 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 Baron, you know, is just a you know a great interview. Uh, he you know adds a lot of color to the book, um, and you know it, it color that authenticity. Like authenticity. It's, that's it's a, like that's, the scars in leather that come from the barbed wire. If it's smooth and there's no scars, you know it's not real leather. <laughs> you know, if it's got the scars on it, this is real leather. Yeah, that's good. But that that's true. And, uh, I mean, to have lived in Brooklyn at that time uh, and still be here today really says something about the grit of, you know, the individual. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, Adam brings a lot of that authenticity to it. Don't, wouldn't you agree, Ken? if you were writing a fictional book. That's, that's true. That's how real we are. And not, not, I shouldn't say we, them, more, more, than, more so than myself and Dad. That's like Chicky and uh, the, the other guy, the uh, Lurch. <laughs> the big, huge guy. Oh, uh, Walter. Yeah, Walter. Walter Dierku. Yeah. Walter <laughs> and then you got guys like Bubba, you know, who was uh, murdering people. So he could get a rock of coke, <laughs> and you can't make yeah. these people up. You yeah. know, and Walter's story is, I mean, amazing. The guy is on his way to work. He stops at a bodega and robs it. Um, and it, tell the rest of the story, Ken. Maybe uh, doesn't. Uh, Which story is that? Oh, the R&T grocery. Right. right yeah. Yep. This was going back to again prior prior to our arrest. It's like four years prior to our arrest. And I think it was July of 88, he went into uh, a tour. He actually invited me to go on this robbery with him, and I turned him down. This was after Dowd had left, and he, uh, Yerku came up to me that morning. He goes, uh, we're going to go hit a place tonight. Do you want to join us? And Dowd was gone. I was, like, sort of relieved that I'm not involved in this shit no more. I was getting back to being a regular cop. And uh, I said, no, thanks. Uh, you know, it was, it, I know it's time to quit, sort of like what happened towards the end in 92 I was trying to get out of the cocaine business before we got arrested but uh, he goes in with two other cops uh, probably around 10 o'clock at night they rob the boat Dago which is just a front for drug sales take a whole bunch of money and drugs from the guy and they kidnap the guy and start riding him around the precinct I'm assuming looking for another drug location or maybe his house and find, see if there's more money there but what happens is they end up letting him go and they're Guy, they had robbed this guy once prior to this. So the guy, like, at this point, you know, we, we always say, well, if you rob somebody of drugs and money, what are they going to do, report it? They're just happy. Well, this is the second time they robbed the guy. So the guy said, fuck this. He went to the precinct to report it, that these guys were posing as police officers. They don't know if they're real police officers, and he got robbed. So while he's reporting at the precinct, Yerku reports for work at midnight, and he's a standout character. He's not like he's blended in. Couple of hundred pounds, and he had red hair at the time. And the guy's like, "There he is! There's the guy who robbed me." And when so they and they looked at, and he had a very uh, unique car, right? And yeah, yeah, I think it was a an old Lincoln or an old Cadillac. It's like a and it's sky blue, yeah. uh, Lincoln Continental. Yeah. And when they go, you know, when they go and look at the car, here's the proceeds from the R and T robbery. Everything was sitting right there in the car. It's, you know, it's uh, it, it, so what happened? <laughs> well, needless to say, Walter's not on the force anymore. Yeah, he, he was fired and he went to prison for, I think, two years. 
See, I thought maybe they just kind of turned around to the guy and said, you must have the wrong guy. <laughs> well, you know, but you know, the thing is, see, this is, okay. So this gets, I think, they to some of the... could have got away with it wasn't me if he didn't have the proceeds of the stuff in his car. Exactly. It's just another six-foot-four red-headed cop in a powder blue Lincoln. I think he had a stolen police radio in the car, too. Portable radio. Well, that way they could listen in and make sure that nobody was, you know, coming into exactly. their... Which is the smart thing. You're working in your precinct. You could listen to the calls that's going on while, while you're robbing someone. Right. So, it, it, now, Kent, it, the fact of the matter is, is that NYPD didn't want anyone to really know that this stuff was going on. Right? Oh, I, 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 prior to this was the 7-7 scandal, which... Uh, made a big hit in the paper. That's where I originally was working before I went to the 7-5. And uh, I think there were 13 cops at the time they were arrested. And rumors were flying back and forth that the 7-5 was going to have the same scandal. And the bosses kept, you know, no, 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 put it down, put it down. And uh, all these complaints, I guess, that were coming in, I, we found out after my arrest, it was like 13 complaints, I think, lodged against Dowd and a few against me. And uh, they just, nope, dumbfounded, sweep it under the rug, sweep it under the rug. They didn't, they didn't you know, didn't want the uh, public embarrassment. No, it's so like they, a, it's like a, they let the cancer spread. Yeah, it's like a, a girl who has the clap and won't tell anybody because it'll ruin her reputation. More, more and more cops kept, kept getting drawn into uh, to what was going on. <laughs> so how how high up did the did the corruption go in your in your precinct? Uh, I can't say. Can't I mean, say that. You can't. You yeah. know, this. This. I, I got to tell you, Ken. The guy asked you this question worked on the Ramparts scandal, so he already I, knew I, the answer to that. You can't tell him. This, you can't. I you can't say like, anything there above were no you. Directly involved with anything that I did. No, I, I think, and I think the. Th I think the more crucial thing is that the bosses looked the other way. They, exactly. they, they, Ken. I, mean, I think, there, there I think you highlighted this, Ken. We have it in the book where I was driving a boss, and Dowd called uh, called me over the radio to meet him, and he handed me stuff, uh, envelopes stuffed full of cash, right in front of the boss, and the boss didn't say a word. So, and and the reason is, is because the the seven seven scandal was was scandalous. Yeah, we don't want any more of those scandals. And, and uh, you know, a, a police officer committed suicide um, when this scandal was exposed. Um, and they had a new commissioner who did not want to be associated with a corrupt New York City Police Department. And rather than root out corruption, he turned the other way. Same today. It, well, I mean, you know, Chief Bratton... Uh, or now com former Commissioner Bratton uh, was e either associated with the NYPD at that time or came in right after Ken left. And, um, the, you know, there's a recent scandal in the NYPD, not, not you know, as deep as the 7-5 or what happened in the 7-7, but it's interesting to me how the same cast of brass, you know, has rotated in and out of the department at about the same times these scandals are coming and going. Wouldn't you agree, Ken? <laughs> What they say is every 20 years, the cycle starts again. So it was 92 we got arrested in 2012. I guess that all started hitting in, you know, these next last couple of years. Right. And it's the same kind of stuff. I mean, you know, nobody's on, it's not people on the pad anymore, but there's different ways to make money on your beat and in your precinct. Any cop who can't do that isn't worth the uniform. 
<laughs> How do you like that for See, encouraging I think Ken would di- But I think Ken, like we started this out, I think Ken would disagree with you. I think that, you know, I mean, the way that we started this whole conversation out is, do you regret it? And I think, Ken, right, you wish oh, that... Absolutely. I would have loved to gone through my career as, as a, you know, a good cop and retire a hero detective like, like the guys I worked with. You know, a lot of my, a lot of my friends are retired detectives, sergeants, uh, Essex we're talking about, I think he, he's still on the job. I know he was still on the job after 30 years and he was a captain. If, has he retired since then? I don't know. I mean, 30 years would have been 2011. So I don't know if he's still on the job, but he, was, he made it up to the rank of captain. Do you ever think about, uh, Taking your experiences to uh, an academy, a police academy, and, uh, you know, a little cautionary visit? After, after I was arrested, that was actually supposed to be part of the plea deal I made that uh, I was supposed to. It, in fact, it, it's in my, uh, my closing paperwork from... Uh, but I will tell you from... And I was supposed to go back to the police academy eventually and uh, give classes. Based uh, on the research... Reason, it, it never came to fruition. I don't know what happened. Ken, you don't have to worry about that. The research for this book, I discovered that at the police academy, you and Mike are not only well-known, your case well-known, oh, un- unfortunately, you're role models. There are the people... Academy, <laughs> of course, the country have been talking about our case since it broke in 92. I mean, there I mean, are I'm, people who have joined the I police force because like, they want to be you. you in the academy. Oh, Chili Pimpin in Lenox City? Yeah. Uh, I gotta tell you, uh, don't mention any names here, but in, in the book we mentioned towards the end about the continual cycle, as you were talking about, of reforms, and then it comes out again, and then more reforms. The uh, uh, Giuliani '94 appointed William Bratton as commissioner. Bratton said about enacting reforms, "Quote, that's bullshit." Counter to former NYPD officer who was on the force during those years, Giuliani encouraged corruption. Anyone who says otherwise is full of shit. Any New York cop with an ounce of honesty about dishonesty knows Giuliani's attitude towards corruption. Quote, do whatever you can get away with, just don't get caught. That's no big secret. The same individual was telling me about police escorts escorting drugs from New Jersey to New York. You know, with the, the ready, like, like you're delivering to the bank or something. That's exactly what we used to do back then with, with Diaz. Yep, same being done now. And then... Uh, you know, and uh, maybe this has something to do with uh, Giuliani uh, suddenly dropping out of the Secretary of State. Uh. I, just, I just heard that today on the news. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was it was awful sudden. And uh, Well, the, and, and the police union in New York is no big fan of his uh, anyway. You saw the giant ad they took out in the uh, New York papers <laughs> a couple months ago. Well, there you go. The union's not happy with him at all. Do you so? Uh, how about the NYPD? How do you, I mean? Uh, you know, now have you have you heard from anybody that's on the force now? The um, you know, like telling you, like, hey, you know, we don't want to relive this. We don't want to bring this back up. We're tired of the story. No, anyone current now, I really have no no uh, no contact with. The whole of people I meet are retired cops who you know they either hate me or love me. They want, wanted to be there doing what we were doing or they're, they're totally the opposite way and, you know, you guys were scumbags and low lives. Yeah, well, it's both are true. It's between, really. It's, 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 it's a love or hate. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a love or hate situation. But when you were, you know, when you were starting out and you were in the academy, though, a lot of this stuff, the, the behaviors, the, 
the blue wall was learned stuff, right? I mean, even in the academy. Uh, absolutely. You, you become so close with these people, you know, working day in and day out with them in the academy. You know, first of all, for me, it was really easy, and for the guys I came on with, it was really easy. We're 20 years old. We still had good study habits. We're in good shape. So it was sort of a breeze. It was like going back through high school. But there were other guys who came on the job. They're in their early 30s. They had families and mortgages, and here they are. You know, they threw away high-paying jobs to do this. <laughs> they really struggled and had a hard time doing it. But uh, you became t so tight with everybody, you, you don't want to, you know, say nothing bad about nobody. You see them doing something that we – and the instructors at the time, and they stopped it after, after one of our uh, – Outings was uh, it was a Friday night, and we all we all going out in the academy, and the instructors went out drinking with us. One of the instructors for the uh, for the gym and, uh, <laughs> went out drinking with you, exactly. fraternizing. Exactly, and it wasn't frowned upon, but certainly after the situation, it was because he got so drunk we had to carry him home. <laughs> that who was living in the city to his apartment, and he was passed out there and didn't make it to work. Well, you you talk a little, a little bit about that, uh, you know, in your memoir, where you where you talk about you know going out after uh, you get your gun, and uh, it's you know you've got it basically on your hip, and bouncers and bars are afraid of you and. Uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, drunk, drunk, a drunk twenty year old with a four four inch barrel Smith and Wesson hanging out his backside. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, w it wasn't the best situation. And, and you and just told him, well, hey, I'm a cop. My man. Time, my man. Slightly less drunk than I was, took my gun, they took the bullets out, and then they gave me back my gun. And I'm like, gee, thanks a lot. What happens if something happens? I got a gun with no bullets in it. Yeah, that's always the guy with the gun that gets the bullets taken out always says that. So, <laughs> thanks a lot. They, they dumped me off at, at an apartment in the city, the same apartment they dropped this uh, instructor off at previously. And then they went back out partying, and then they came back to the apartment, crashed out drunk. Three guys fell fell out in the hallway because two guys in the apartment were too drunk to answer the door when they came came home. You know, the, the drinking actually brings everyone closer together, I think. Oh yeah. Jeez. Oh, so so yes, it does. And so does the penthouse forum. Uh, yeah. Ba back in the back in the seventies, no. uh, you know, there was. Penthouse Forum, Penthouse Magazine, as you know, is a. I had a dear friend who used to write the letters to for the Penthouse this Forum. Is, yeah. This is a problem my wife has now. The fact that I brought this up in a book. We just talked about it today. Oh. Okay, sorry, yeah, Penthouse Forum. I'm, we'll stop here. <laughs> we'll stop here. We'll stop about the. Uh, no, but it's just true. Alan Goldblatt, my close personal friend, uh, Billboard Award-winning uh, producer, used to write the letters. Uh, and, you know, the letters to the editor, like, I, I got a question, you know, my, my horrible situation. Yeah, they're fake. He used to write them. I think it's you know what? We used to think, so, you know, when, you, when you're when you in junior high school and high school and you read those, you think, ah, this has got to be fake. It this is. can't be real. It is fake. <laughs> now I know. Yeah, I'm a tree I'm a tree sloth with eight legs. <laughs> yeah. And this gorgeous girl came up to me. Yeah. Can you give me some <laughs> advice? What happened to me could have actually been a letter. 
<laughs> Good that one of Burl's friends wrote. <laughs> wow, my head is spinning now. <laughs> probably Alec probably wrote it. Oh boy. <laughs> Is that kind of patrol car? Yeah, I think that's a letter for Penthouse <laughs> I like the, the women dancing on the hood of the car. How did they avoid the flashing lights? Yeah, well, that, right? I, I don't know. I wasn't there for that one. I only seen pictures of it. That, oh. it, that was a, uh, a you know, in, in Chicky's part of the book, he talks a lot about, you know, that kind of stuff where they, there was a, like a, I don't know if you'd call it a clubhouse or a hangout or a, you know, a place where everybody went. Like in the Choir Boys. You remember uh, Wamba book, exactly. The Choir Boys? Mm. Onion Field. And, you know, the guys would go and hang out there after their shift and you know, drink and fire off their weapons. and um, Stup. I, I, I love the, I think it was Chicky that was telling me how they would get loads of fireworks and go down there and pop them off. Um, yeah, that, that was me. Uh, right? you, well, he might have had a similar one, yeah. You you did you did that too, though, right? Yeah, yeah. It was I think the first year we were in the seven five. What what did what did you do? You took fireworks it was, from? It was the Fourth of July, and we had three squad cars. We were working a midnight tour, and they just all three of us just rode around the precinct collecting fireworks from from the people shooting them off in the neighborhood. And instead of either throwing them in the trash or you're supposed to voucher them, it would have took us probably three years to voucher them all. We had three squad cars full of fireworks. We went all the way down to the end of the pier, uh, down by Starrett City on the other side of uh, Belt Parkway. It was probably 4 o'clock in the morning, and we started shooting off all fireworks. <laughs> it's just awesome. See, this was a good life. you know. So now what about um, the Starrett City actually figures... Fairly big in the book, right? Yeah, well, that that's where the uh, the local local bar was, uh, the hangout, uh, Bailey's Bar, which was owned by a housing cop. Uh, we used to go there on duty, drink for free, and uh, sometimes it would uh, the guys would get together there, plan their little raids and robberies. So yeah, that that. That figures prominently into the book. You you also had though some call. You had an interesting call, I think, at Star City, right, with a couple of brothers. Yeah, there was. Uh, this was all prior to doubt. This is just regular police work type stuff. We uh, went to a scene of a uh, shot fired in Star City. It was probably up on the tenth floor. It was one of these high rise buildings, and uh, we get there, and there's these two teenage boys, brothers. And uh, there's a hole in the wall. They shot a rifle. They were playing with their father's guns through the wall that went into the apartment next door and lodged right above a baby's crib. So actually what happened was the parents from next door had called, and then we went back over and met the brothers. So what we did, we ended up taking them to Spofford. We vouched all the guns, turned all the guns in. And as we were dropping them off at Spofford, me and my partner were saying to each other, one day one of these kids is going to kill each other. Uh, each other, uh, another person. So, uh, probably two years later, three years later, call again comes over, shots fired. I recognize the address. We go racing over there, and one of the kids did kill somebody. He shot his own brother in the chest and killed him. And th- I think this is, I mean, I think that underlying all the, you know, the coke and the robbery and all the, like, crap that's going on, I mean, this is the day to day life in the 7 5. It's a lot of bad stuff, right, Ken? My gun was out every day, and not just like once a tour, like probably ten times a tour. You getting calls constantly for shootings, murders, confirmed shootings, confirmed murders, and uh, you know it was just running.
Well, uh, Ken, uh, you work a busy four to twelve. Sometimes you handle twenty, twenty-five jobs in a tour, in an eight-hour tour. At four o'clock in the morning, uh, my time last night, uh, they were running the movie *The Bad Lieutenant* with Harvey Keitel. Excellent movie. Excellent movie. Well, in 1994, I was in New York for the uh, Edgar Awards. I'm proud to say, and uh, kind of made friends with a guy who was uh, in the NYPD, who was an aspiring author. I don't know if he ever became one or not, but. I happened to mention that film to him. He goes, great film, great film. He says, but, you know, back at the precinct, we don't call it the bad lieutenant. We just call it the lieutenant. <laughs> Which is always kind of cool. We just call it the lieutenant. Hey, Louie. <laughs> So oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm buy the book. Maybe we should buy out. I just put my tongue. Should mention the name of the book so people can buy numerous copies for right, the holidays. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Betrayal in Blue: The Shocking Memoir of the Scandal that Rocked the NYPD. Story behind the documentary The Seven Five, written by brilliant Burl Bear, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., and our guest Ken Urell. And of course, he had no fear of the cops because he was the cops. They were the cops. And uh, this book will clear up one of the most important little bits of misinformation. Or well, I have a crane for that if you want. Well, you want misinformation? No, to clear that up. Yeah, let's clear that up. Watching the 7-5, which I've done several times, at the end, you get this distorted impression that Ken rolled over, shall we say, on Michael, cooperate on getting Michael busted to avoid going to jail. Bullshit. That is not what happened. Really? And the fact that it gives that impression pisses me off. Because if you pay close attention to what's actually said in the documentary, it belies that. In the book, it's made even more clear. They were both arrested the same night. They were both out on bail. Ken saying, hey, man, we did the crime. We should just do the time and get it over with. And Mike saying, got a plan. I got a plan. If I could just stop sweating long enough, I'll tell you the plan. Wipe the perspiration out of my eyes, and I'll tell you, we're going to kidnap a woman whose dead husband owned the Colombians some drug money, and we'll turn her over for execution. In return for that, they'll smuggle us to Nicaragua and work on a shrimp boat. What do you say, pal? You in? <laughs> fuck no. <laughs> I mean... No, I told him fuck no about a hundred times. <laughs> typical... Let's put it like this. Typical, my ex-partner, he never accepted no. Well, to me, and I know this is weird sounding, but to me it was Sophie's choice in a squad car. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you didn't cooperate with the feds regarding your partner, most likely he'd be dead. The Colombians would have killed him. If he was lucky enough to escape that, the feds would send him away for 25 to life. So, either you had a choice. You could save your partner's life, or you can cooperate with the feds. You know, if you cooperate with the your same friends. choice. Yeah, it's the same choice. Right. If you don't, if you stick with him, you'll probably both be dead. At least if he went off to do it himself, he'd the be dead. The fucked up part is if he would have seen the writing on the wall the first time I got called into the feds, I actually told him, Mike, I'm getting called into the feds. I got to go see what they want. My lawyer said we have to go in. And when I got back from that meeting, he was practically waiting on my doorstep to find out what happened. So he knows all about the feds are involved. I told him they were already in contact with me. It's when I went back in a second time, because he wouldn't stop with this fucking escape plan to Central America, that I, I had to do it. That was, uh, once I told my lawyer what was going on, he was like, that's it, you have to cooperate. Well, yeah, the, I mean, it's the, insane. The, for, the Forrest Dowd escape plan. <laughs> barbecue shrimp, shrimp on a <laughs> boat, shrimp po'boy, <laughs> shrimp sandwich, 
Hand on a stick. It's like chocolate. <laughs> well, uh, if people want to give you a bad time. Uh, you say, what was you just tell them? Would you rather let my partner get killed? You know, there's a choice. There's your choice for you. I can save his life or not save his life. So there you are. Anyway, buy several copies of the book. And for the, one of the first times in the history of literature, you can get the paperback, the ebook, and the audiobook all at the same time. Uh, for one special price? Well, yeah, probably if you lump them all together. Yeah, you got to figure out how to do that. But, <laughs> but that is true. It is. That's music. Okay, that's awesome. That, that's applause. Well, that's applause. Yeah. I just thought it was distortion. No, that's applause. <laughs> um, you know, I got to say this about the audiobook. Just listening to uh, Kevin Pierce read the the chapter where uh, Dory is confronting the SWAT team in her house made me want to read the book. <laughs> and you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> he does do a great job. And the introduction by Burl Bear is priceless. <laughs> I didn't pay his input. <laughs> Thank you, Ken Urell. Ken, you, you're awesome. Say hi to Dory for me. Thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Hey, Burl. Well. What's next? Uh, Magic Man Allen and the Demons of Decade is live in the Lightning Lounge. Outlaw Radio, USA. Mm-hmm.